Hello and welcome to another episode of The Goat Farm. With you as always is Michael Ducey, and with me is my co-host, Ross Clanton. Say hello, Ross. Hello. So today we've got uh, a guest calling in all the way from the UK, uh, Johnny Woldridge. Johnny's going to talk about his journey of DevOps in a large enterprise. Uh, and we'll also, as Johnny's now moved on from a large enterprise to a small startup, it'll be interesting to kind of compare and contrast his experience at the large organization versus the small organization as well. Don't you think, Ross? Absolutely. So before we start talking to Johnny, uh, Ross, is there anything that's kind of struck you since the last time we recorded, anything that you want to talk about in particular? Uh, well, it sounds like there was a, there was a dialogue uh, that you were part of uh, in the last couple of days related to language um, around DevOps. That's something that maybe we could get into today. Yeah, so CA did a study of, of DevOps and DevOps adoption. And it seems like there's a lot of really good data in the study and I've, I haven't like dug into it deeply. But I saw a tweet last night uh, promoting it and talking about uh, actually DevOps adoption in Singapore, which is actually really interesting to me because I've been doing a lot of work over the last year in Asia Pacific. So I thought it was interesting that this one particular part of the study they were able to dissect out, you know, Singapore in particular. In the article, it was an article on, C I believe it was CIO.com. And in the article, they actually talked about how organizations in Singapore were deploying DevOps. And so I made a comment to the person who had, had published or uh, promoted that, that article, uh, just in quotes, deploying DevOps. And I think most people, you know, <laughs> would realize that deploying DevOps is probably not the right, you know, mm -hmm. parlance that we want to be using. And it kind of turned into this debate, and uh, at the end of it, somebody, it wasn't, it was friendly, and at the end of it, somebody else chimes in and, uh, you know, essentially calls me the ped pedant, pedant of DevOps, so me being pedantic <laughs> over language. <clears throat> and so, I had another interesting, and at the exact same time, well, I'm sleeping at a certain point, I get an email overnight from... Uh, the DevOps Days Paris organizers. And I had proposed a talk uh, called Jisui on DevOps. And for those of you who don't know French, it's I am a DevOps. Mm -hmm. And they got back to me and they're like, this sounds like a really interesting proposal. And we've kind of debated it among the organizing team. And we want you to change your title. And the reason why we want you to change the title of the talk is because there's a little bit of controversy around this whole idea of I am a DevOps, and we wouldn't say that in English, right? And there's going to be a lot of new people, and we don't want to confuse them. So while like you could say deploying DevOps, right, and it could be in some circles particularly valid, right? But and if somebody like maybe Bridget Crumholt said it to me, I would know that she didn't mean what she was meaning, right? But when you're getting out into a larger organization and, and a larger group and people that are new, it's really important that we use the, at least in my opinion, and obviously the opinion of others, that we use the right language so that people kind of understand and it reinforces certain ideas. Does that make sense? It does. Do you feel like that may, if you contrast to our dialogue in the last podcast, how does this line up with, with your ideas on whether there should be a definition around DevOps? I guess there is a definition around DevOps, 
I mean, I don't. We we keep going back to that. There isn't a definition around DevOps, but there's a generalized definition. I think we all agree on that. It's not something that it's a transforma uh, transformational effort, not a object that you deploy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and in the very basic gener the the very basic definition, I think we all agree on that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I agree with that. Yeah, and and the more that we say, you know, transforming organizations through DevOps rather than deploying DevOps, it puts every in my mindset, it puts everybody in the mindset of this is a change that I have to make, not an action I just take. Yeah, a thing that I have to go right. It's not do. a box I just check. Right. So it's interesting. I'm in. Uh... I'll, I'll contrast this with some inside the enterprise discussions. And while it, you know, that's a localized inside a company setting, I feel like same types of challenges. It's, it's, um, the language that's used is often very different across the enterprise and the purists, the people that live and breathe the community, the people that follow folks like yourself, you know, Adam Jacob, Patrick Dubois, you know, the, the folks that are really deep in the community, they're really grounded in it being this this cultural, you know, transformational movement, and they're very passionate about that. Like it's it's very it's catalyzing for them. They're very passionate about what it is. For folks that aren't as exposed to it, and and that's the the overwhelming majority um, within an enterprise, they don't understand that, and so DevOps becomes. Um, it almost becomes this catch-all for a lot of things. Um, it becomes the tools. It becomes the teams. Um, I've even had my team referred to as a DevOps team many times. Um, and, you know, it kind of drives me crazy. And I've, I've started to just get used to it because I've, I've also realized that if I want to keep driving momentum, I've got to be flexible with how I'm interacting with, with my stakeholders. Um, but... Yeah, it's interesting. I don't know that we'll ever get everyone to <clears throat> a common understanding of what it is, but I do think that people are going to have to realize that that there's there's different levels of understanding of what DevOps is, and for the people that really deeply understand it, it has a pretty significant meaning to them. Um, for others, it feels like they're just trying to f- figure out how to latch onto it, so they become part of it, and they're going to have to learn as they go. But uh, yeah, it doesn't surprise me that uh, you ran into a situation where someone was talking about deploying DevOps because I've heard that in many scenarios. So let's get some uh, let's get some thoughts on this from Johnny. Hey Johnny, what do you think uh, about this idea of language and and especially with new people and how yeah, language kind of impacts adoption? I, I find it fascinating. Partly, um, as you know, I've got the domain name Enterprise DevOps, and people. <laughs> Uh, often saying there's, there's no such thing as enterprise DevOps. Um, Myself uh, included. Which, maybe we'll talk about that later on. But uh, the, the point I was going to make, when I was at Marks & Spencer, there was a, a team that came to me one day and said, hey, Johnny, I know you're a great believer in DevOps. Uh, we've just created our own DevOps team. I was like, okay, that's interesting. Well, what exactly do you do then? And it's like, yeah, we, we sit between developers and operations. Um, and I, I was thinking you just uh, completely missed the idea of what DevOps is all about. But... You know, people are very keen to just jump on the bandwagon uh, and, and use the term in, a, in an enterprise. You know, because it makes them uh, out to be uh, 
using the cutting edge thinking, even if they're not. Yeah, it's it's the thing. It's the popular thing. It's the buzz. So now it's the DevOps. <laughs> yeah, but but Ross, in, in Target, um, do you have the issue then that you feel slightly that you know you helped introduce DevOps, so you know people know you for that, but yet you don't want to be the DevOps team. You want other people to you know start doing some of the same practices and have some of the same goals. Yes. Yet, some people in the organization and not really do it in the right way, so you feel a bit of an obligation to correct them. That's what I found. Yeah, um, I, I, I will say that folks on my team are probably even more passionate about that um, at this point, but I do. I mean, when when it, when it I feel like people don't have a firm understanding of what it is, I, I do have this, I feel incented to try to clarify and and help them understand what it is. I've also continued to adapt my style because I'm trying to help drive a broader movement that that has gotten an enormous um, momentum. So more and more people are understanding the community around it is getting larger and larger and larger every day, and there are a growing number of people that actually are have a deeper understanding of what it is. But um, yeah, it's it can be tough because I don't want people looking. You know, you know when I set when I built a team that was focused on these things. My vision for that team was for them to be enablers to teach others the same things and not be the team that did all the things. And um, that that's different. That's not how we've tended to have teams in our organization before. And so it, it was a mindset shift for people to go through that, hey, we're not going to go, you know, do uh, some sprints for you and write all your infra code for you and do all that stuff. We're going to embed with you and sit beside you and show you how to do it so you learn how to work in these ways. And that was that was a, a different for folks. Now we've introduced a lot of new practices and approaches that have gained traction now so that people are getting more comfortable with it. But yeah, it's been an interesting kind of journey over the last year or so um, with how we've approached trying to drive adoption across such a large IT organization. I, I used to not use the DevOps word at all really, just say I was trying to introduce professional software engineering practices um, end-to-end because it seems really DevOps is a word that isn't that helpful in some ways, I think. Um, So I'm I'm not surprised there's a massive amount of argument over what it actually means. Yep, same boat. I've done many of the same things. So Johnny, um, let's talk a little bit about your background and why don't you give us an overview of of how you kind of got started in, in the world of DevOps and your work at uh, your previous company, Marks and Spencer. Yeah, sure. So m- my background is actually mechanical engineering. So um, even at university, I was learning a lot about the kind of lean manufacturing techniques, etc. Um, and then years ago, when I was in some of the startups before Marks and Spencer, I was very much uh, trying to push the whole Hudson automation. Um, trying to think what some of the other tools were back then: cruise control, etc. Uh, way before anything that was uh, termed DevOps. So I guess before I joined Marks and Spencer, we could say, yes, we were just trying to automate as much as possible end-to-end. And because the team was relatively small, we, we didn't really have a separate ops team. So it was relatively straightforward. The people who wrote the code supported the code. Um, and obviously, they try and automate as much as possible to get as much uh, done in the sprinters as they could. So then moving on to, um, to Marks and Spencer, where I, I, was bas- I basically joined the team to help drive a bit of agility into what was one of the largest 
um, transformation projects uh, on the planet at the time to move uh, the whole website and technologies to a, a new platform. My role there was really to start with, again, just how do we do better software engineering? There was no word of DevOps. I, I didn't even uh, introduce the word. Um, but very soon it became clear that the, the, the program would struggle without some kind of governance over how software left the brains of the developer and ended up on production. Um, and actually I was quite surprised how I, I managed to kind of form this team without really anyone asking me. I guess I kind of morphed what was a maybe a dev and test function into a an end-to-end um, team that, that was responsible for you know, which packages of code were going into particular test environments, how, was, how did it get there, what was the provenance of the code, was it security scanned, did we have the automated tests, had we automated the builds, etc., etc., which just seemed to come uh, about the same time that DevOps was becoming more and more fashionable um, before Gene uh, put his book out there. Um, so we, we were kind of doing some of this uh, end-to-end thinking and some of the lean principles really before DevOps became a word. And I, I think really we kind of slipped into the, the kind of trap a bit that suddenly we renamed ourselves DevOps just because it was uh, kind of the cool thing to do at the time. But it did help us for a while for people to sort of ask questions. Why, why were we different? Why did we call that? Um, and I did quite a lot of presentations at the time to explain how we needed to align objectives between people in operations and development because they were completely two camps at that point. Uh, so the, the word actually helped just to get a bit of discussion going. But, uh, yeah, it was a really interesting time. How did you go about actually aligning those objectives? So to start with, it was a bit of, it's often said that you need to have a bit of a, a sort of underground movement to just get things going. What I found in a large enterprise is, you know, often people expect PowerPoint presentations or big, big Visio diagrams of the future uh, and, and less likely to just say, well, just get stuck into it and show us when it's working. So I, I was lucky that I had a bit of budget that I could kind of secretly squirrel away and uh, get some, some of the work automated. And it was really by just showing how things could look that suddenly we started to get people um, throughout the kind of chain of events to start thinking, well, actually, yeah, that makes sense. If we've got full visibility end-to-end and if we know what's coming and if we automate as much as possible, then we can, um, we can uh, make the whole process end-to-end a bit smoother. So to that end, we, we actually built a, a cross-discipline team uh, in this big project. So it's a £150 million project. So within that, we had this team that included people from operations, people from security, development, testing, infrastructure, all the classic silos of people. We just basically got in the room every week and said, what could we do to, uh, to align ourselves? And a bit like you, Ross, that was a bit different from normal kind of silo teams that would try their best not to talk to other, other people. Yeah. We specifically had objectives that we set that weren't our own objectives. They were team objectives. And, and even that was a kind of a new thing in, in some ways to say, well, I'm, I'm relying on another team to deliver half this stuff. And it's, you know, that was a bit strange. Yeah. Did, did uh, the, their leaders from their silos, was there difficulty in getting them aligned with essentially kind of putting all these folks onto that team and, and getting them under team-aligned objectives? So, yeah, it wasn't as formal as like 100% of their time was in this team. Um, it was more that it was a, uh, an idea-sharing uh, forum, I suppose, and that we would try and align ourselves as much as possible. 
Mm-hmm. But I had, I had one instance, I remember vividly, where I asked the project manager, um, could I have one of your engineers for a couple of hours to help us automate um, a bit of middleware so that uh, you, know, you just press a button in the future and you'd get it. Um, and I had to five about two weeks to get two hours of a developer's time to just help us help them. Um, at which point, for the next three years, they, best, they, they pressed a button and their middleware got deployed. So it just showed the lack of understanding of you know just getting someone else to share a bit of resource for a bit of time would really pay dividends in in the long run. So Johnny, you actually just came back from Tel Aviv. You spoke at the Enterprise DevOps Summit there, and you also spoke at the DevOps Enterprise Summit, or DOZ as it's been nicknamed, last October. Uh, give us a little bit of an idea of, of what you talked about at those two conferences. Was it the same thing or two different topics? It was the same theme, slightly, slightly different. But um, yeah, so when, when Gene originally put out the invites for speakers, um, I was clearly embedded in Marks and Spencer at the time and had all this experience of what pains we'd gone through in the enterprise to get some of this end-to-end flow working. Um, subsequently, I got the, the invite to actually join the conference. And at, at this point, I'd actually quit <laughs> Marks and Spencer and joined a, a startup. So I was thinking, well, maybe I just turn it down because uh, you know there's going to be no real need for a, a startup to be a, at this conference. But I, I was thinking about it, all the challenges I was about to face uh, with a clean sheet of paper in a startup. And I was thinking, actually, everything that I've come across in the last three years trying to do DevOps in a, in a large enterprise is absolutely relevant to what I need to do next. So I, I used that as my theme, really, uh, and trying to pull together kind of 10 tips of what I was doing at M&S that helped and what I would try and do again, um, even at a small company, to, uh, to get DevOps off the ground quickly. Um, so essentially, that, that was what I was talking about. And uh, as part of that, I kind of put together a framework of how to visually describe some of the journey I wanted to go through with the team. And that, that in itself was quite useful to talk to the to my new company as well as um, personally, I see in, in an enterprise context is leaders can't easily get their head around how do you apply this. You know, you've got you've got a lot of um, uh, history of architecture in an enterprise and and a lot of you know legacy, um, different types of integrations, different types of complexities. What I liked about your framework, I saw I saw your presentation and, and I've rewatched it a couple times now. Is it starts to to show people how to start kind of piecing apart your overall portfolio so that you can focus in on the things where you're going to get the most value with these practices and and then have maybe a different approach for for others. Can you just talk a little bit about that framework and just how you how you kind of classify things or what the approach is there? Yeah, certainly. So I guess the unicorn term I, I was starting to find quite frustrating, and I'd go to events in London. Uh, and you'd hear, you know, these great new companies with new technology doing funky things with, with DevOps and automation. And I was thinking, this is, this is quite easy compared to what uh, the average enterprise has to, to wade through. So Marks & Spencer, for example, I think it's got about a thousand applications that, that holds the company together. Um, most of which were built when there were different objectives. You know, having continuous delivery wasn't one of the objectives that was uh, part of the original project. So you're left with this uh, enterprise ecosystem of applications that were never really designed to be continuously delivered, kind of rely on large integration test environments to make changes to. And yet, 
you've got uh, the kind of unicorns in the world saying, hey, you just uh, automate this and put some testing here and have some cloud services here and everything's fine. So I, I guess that part of that frustration was I desperately want to do some of this um, cool stuff, but yet I've got this, you know, in terms of the project we were working on, there were lots of legacy or we started to call them heritage to be less, uh, less mean to them. Um, these kind of legacy environments that uh, you know we were never going to be able to change in the in the, the timescales of our project. So how would we deal with it? And that was where really we started looking at um, the different paces of our application. Um, and at the same time, this was a few years ago now, I noticed a, Gar a Gartner article about pace layering. And although I didn't necessarily agree with everything, it kind of helped me explain within the enterprise that I was trying to do a, a similar thing. So different applications could have different governance models and different ways of being deployed. They might be connected in different ways or require a different uh, route to production. And suddenly, what the, the, the original, original challenge, which was how do we get this massive, complicated, connected enterprise system to be continuously delivered, was more of a question of which part of it are important to be continuously delivered and how do we go about pulling them out. So it's uh, not only a, a team problem, but also uh, an architecture problem. And again, this, this is why it's interesting for my new company in that I'm making sure the architecture is in, in such a position that uh, it enables uh, you know, freedom for different teams to, to work on uh, bits of the application independently at different so, speeds. Just so I, um, I, I'll ask one more question just to, to clarify maybe how you approached it too. So in that sense, following that framework, do you when you kind of mapped your whole system, all the different myriad of applications that, that, that made up delivering, you know, your website, did it highlight for you then areas where you would specifically go and then try to modernize the, the technology architecture as part of applying DevOps approaches, cultural practices, et cetera, to change how you deliver that? Yeah, so, so the model that I kind of put together relies on two things being very good. One being the architecture and the technology, and the other one being the team. Now, in an enterprise where often the sort of methodology is project-based, where teams get pulled together, maybe they're offshore, maybe they're a third-party company that's got uh, you know no no incentive to do DevOps. In in those scenarios, you you don't necessarily have the best team or the best technology solution at at the end of the day. But um, I was lucky that we were introducing a, an in-house team. Um, a brand new team that we were recruiting in London. So we, we had an opportunity to say, well, let's, let's make sure that the people we recruit are in the, the, the correct mindset for agile and continuous delivery and testing, etc. And let's make sure that the, the work that we get them to, to, to work on is in architectures and technology that best suit what we want to do. So that then enabled us to then focus a, the, the correct team on, on the bits that we really wanted to innovate with, and then kind of say, well, okay, maybe we've got this big finance system. Um, it's been supported in India. We have three monthly release cycles. There's no way we're going to change that, but let's make sure that we can de decouple ourselves from that as sensibly as possible. So in, in that process, you are touching on the technology and the team and the culture, but instead of trying to push the entire organization in the same direction, we basically took... To be honest, the best team and the best technology and push them as far forward as we could and then backfilled as much as we could with the other teams so that they were learning from this kind of uh, super team. Sure. Um, hey, Ducey, I actually want to, I'm going to 
throw a question out your way here as well. No, um, that's fine. Uh, so I'm just curious again. So you're you tend to be our, our vendor representative on this podcast. So you get to go out. <laughs> you get to go out and interact with a lot of different companies. And I know you've been obviously focused on enterprises. How are you seeing enterprises dealing with these legacy um, architectures and then the, the kind of newer modern approaches? And how do you see them kind of dealing with DevOps in that whole context? That's an interesting, I guess, a bit of an interesting beast. Uh, what it, what we do see is where there's initially a team that's set up that is learn that essentially learns the new way of behavior, right? Mm-hmm. And I think what a lot of this, kind of going back to kind of our opening conversation. A lot of this is about enforcing behavior and um, it's an interesting thing because as a vendor like we go in and we like we want to be you know chef will transform your world or product will transform your world right and what it really will transform your world is if you change the way that you act right Mm -hmm. and so Usually what we're seeing is that there's a set of people or a team or a group that we work with first to teach them how to change how they act. And then they worry about taking it back out into the larger, broader organization. And you see this time and time again. I think GE is probably the latest example that I've seen this at. I was invited to speak at uh, DevOps, or not at DevOps, but a... Kind of an automation symposium that GE had internally. They brought in all kinds of people from all over the place, uh, all of their different lines of business. You know, aviation, healthcare. You know, GEs and everything, right? And because all the stories we hear from GE are like great, you know, they're really successful and they're moving along. But then they brought in all these other people from all these other parts of the organization mm-hmm. who had no idea what we were talking about and. We had to go back to, in many ways, like DevOps 101. And it's really interesting because, like, they've built this core team, they were really successful, and now they have to evangelize it out. And it's almost like, I think Gartner calls it bimodal IT. But I think when Gartner talks about bimodal IT, they expect, like, this legacy to keep running for a long time. I think a lot of us are starting to think that it becomes like there's a convergence of the old way and the new way eventually. Yeah, I'm I'm kind of up. I'm aware of both pace layering and, and bimodal IT. I, I really like the framework of pace layering. I was very familiar with it when I was in enterprise architecture. When you've got thousands of apps, it, it definitely helps you to start thinking about things differently. So when I saw Johnny using that framework, I was like, oh, that totally makes sense to me. Bimodal, that caught that caught enormous ground inside target and about two years ago you know it was there was an article called two speeds of it and oh i i hated it because what what was happening was everyone latched onto it and said there's two speeds now and literally we used the language one speed was was branded stability and the other speed was branded agility so the, the digital teams were the agility speed, and they could just go really, really fast doing you know, the dot-com type products, et cetera. But then we had to really control and lock down the other speed. And 
so I was, you know, I got on my soapbox and I was like, Hey, this isn't, this is not an or thing. This is an and thing. Like everything has to get more, more agility. And if we do it right, we get more stability too. And, and not, not that I, that, that is the classic mistake. So just to just to add to that, we we had a, a big IT offsite where um, at Marks and Spencer, where that, that exact same thing was said. You know, we're going to introduce this agile thing, but uh, you know, only for the place, only for the areas of the company that don't need the stability. Well, and, uh, and that's an interesting thing, is because like what it ends up creating in the organization is an excuse not to change. In, in yeah. my perspective. Yeah. But what, what yeah. I'd say, you, you look at the application portfolio of most enterprises, they're not changing most of it. You know, it's just sat there quite happily running. You know, it's questionable how good the code control is and the, the, the deployment procedures, but you're not necessarily wanting to go back and improve them because that's not where, especially in retail, you want to spend your money. Yeah. Um, it would be nice, but, you know, you'd be there for a couple of centuries trying to re-architect a lot of these old systems. So I, I find it interesting that there's the there is this kind of digital team that's doing all this funky stuff, but there's also the the old stuff that, where appropriate, you should improve it. But um, you don't necessarily have to go to every single application with a view that you want to improve everything. And that was my initial thought coming from a startup: was like, well, why are all these systems not running the way I'd want to do it? We need to change all of them. But actually, that's the point. You know, you you tackle the the ones that add the most value to be changed fast. Yeah, I do think the culture, though, you want to start to drive across the organization so, so people learn how to work differently. But the practices, the newer practices like, you know, CI and continuous integration, continuous delivery, infrastructure as code, those types of things, you, you tend to align more towards where you're going to modernize your, your portfolios and move and, and keep investing in new applications and new products. At least that's how I've seen us start to, I feel like that's where I'm seeing a lot of pivoting on this stuff because it lines up really, really well with, with kind of the newer technology practices that are out there now. Yeah. In my mind, this just becomes the way you do software and, and infrastructure engineering and yeah. every engineer's role. And why you wouldn't uh, you know, automate a mainframe build if that was the key part of your business that needs to change a lot. It's just if it's not changing a lot, then just, you know, focus on the things that really will make the difference. Yeah, and I think that's important, right? And, like, focus on the things that will make a difference. But that doesn't mean, like, you can't go back and maybe once you've you've adapted this new way of thinking and this new mindset, it doesn't mean that you can't go back and think of, like, is there a better way we could actually be doing these older systems, right? So, there's like, like, is there a painful process that we have to do every quarter on these systems that we could maybe improve, right? Because like we have to close the books. And so there's this manual script that has to get ran to do this ETL extract and all of these other things. Right. Like, I think, I think when you start to question what you've been doing and the way you work and then you go and, and you've made big strides in areas where it's easy to, when you go back and look at the older systems, you now look at them in a different perspective, I think, to where you, you, you can think to say, well, maybe there actually is something that I can improve. And it doesn't have and to be I a actually, huge thing. I actually, I really agree with that. And that's why I always kind of 
go back to DevOps is about the culture. And sometimes I, I catch flack for that. I'm the fluffy culture guy. But if, if you can drive the culture change, you can drive the way that people think differently, and you can drive that across your organization, then, yeah, then everyone starts to look at their problems from a different lens. And they're like, oh, you know, I might be the one guy that's siloed away dealing with this really old system that we're not investing a lot in because it's not something that's driving a bunch of revenue growth for us anymore or something. But, hey, I've learned to think differently. I've participated in DevOps days. I've, I've interacted with some of these teams that are operating differently. And now I have some new ideas on how, you know, me as the one guy that doesn't have any investment in the space can still drive some of these improvements in my space. Now, I will say you get a lot more focus and energy and investment on the newer initiatives. And clearly that's where a lot of you, you hear a lot of the DevOps success stories. But if you can change the culture then you can start to see these changes take root, I think, more broadly across an enterprise. So kind of on this topic, Johnny, now that you've you've worked at a large enterprise and now that you've worked at a startup and, and trying to do kind of a, a DevOps transformation at both, really, like kind of compare and contrast of like what are the major differences that you've seen between the two different organizations and, and what are the challenges and what makes one unique versus the other, if, if there is uniqueness. So obviously on the, on, the, on the scale side, decision-making is so much easier in a startup and I don't have to go through a, an audit board or a, um, you know, a finance team to make a decision on you know, whether I want to get a, a chef license or something or um, an enterprise AWS instance. So I, I can make decisions pretty quickly, which is pretty obvious. But there's, there's lots of things that are exactly the same and that, that's what I find quite interesting. So whether you're trying to explain to... Uh, some middle management or senior management in, a, in an enterprise what DevOps is and the need for the investment in it. Or if you're starting out in a, a smaller company and you're trying to talk to the founder and say, you know, I'm going to have this extra cost, but it'll be worth it because you'll be able to get software out a lot quicker. You know, the, the way that I was trying to describe that is, is the same in both, um, both instances using the, the framework that I talked about. So lots and lots of similarities. Um, again, at Marks and Spencer, we kind of had this idea of a, a code factory, and, and again, I have all these unfashionable terms. Um, but actually, we, we found the, the kind of idea of, well, if you were starting out building some software and you already had your build uh, automation in place and you already had a framework for testing in place and you already had deployment mechanism and your cloud infrastructure already ready to go and Git configured and it linked to Slack or whatever, that's kind of an empty shell of a, a software factory that you just need to add code and suddenly you've got a, a DevOps pipeline. So we, we kind of built something similar to that at Marks and Spencer and joining Cambridge Satchel, before I even had a team, I was thinking, well, I need to build my factory it's just so that we can really innovate fast and we're not scrambling around trying to uh, do manual deploys for a few months until we actually um, can get around to automating it. What, what if we could do that from the beginning? So, so that's what we did, and it's been pretty successful in terms of the speed at which we can get um, our website out. So for me, there's just so many similarities. Um, in terms of contracts, I'm very wary of getting into any kind of contract that will slow us down or tie us into any dependency in terms of technology or, or team. So that's, that's a really important point for me, and obviously people are looking to more and more cloud services. And that, that's what I've sort of said here. You know, If I can use a finance system in the cloud, or and I don't have to host it myself or build it myself, then um, 
you know, that will just be one less dot on my diagram that I need to connect to um, and worry about the infrastructure. Johnny, just to, to clarify, because I, I, you know, you, you said earlier about sometimes factory has a negative <clears throat> connotation, and um, I know it does too at times. So you're talking more about a, uh, a 20th century Toyota factory than a 19th century Ford factory, right? <laughs> so it's not, yeah. not a bunch of manual. Because <laughs> exactly. I've, I've heard the software uh, factory context used where it's been a bunch of manual siloed teams that just pass work. All right. No, certainly not that. That's not the case I, I, I talk about. So I remember yeah. having a conversation with the, the CIO at Marks and Spencer and saying, you know, how much visibility actually do you have of your factory? You know, if, if, it, if he was not part of IT but was part of uh, manufacturing, you know, there'd be dashboards, there'd be instruments, there'd be levers that he could pull, uh, processes that he could change to, to affect the, the output. But in IT, the average CIO seems to kind of put up with, uh, especially in an enterprise, a kind of red, amber, green project status on a spreadsheet once a week, um, trusting that these big projects are kind of moving forward correctly. Where my point was, well, we could put in some machinery that would help the whole process of software engineering, you know, the build scripts, the deployment scripts, the dashboards, so that actually have visibility of what's going on in your in your organization. So that that for me is is just the way I have to work nowadays. I don't really want to have a team where people are committing things, I don't know what they're doing, or the things getting deployed and I'm, I'm not aware of it. So for me, that's, that's what I mean by this factory, is just getting the tools in place to enable developers to develop and for management to see what, what's going on. Yeah, and how did that, um, that, getting that approach in place, how did it change how you guys thought about governing your delivery? Because you know how data and dashboards, right? So did it change the way you thought about just the concept of governance in general? Because I know that's often a big concept in the enterprise. I would say we're, we're still, I mean, we're, we're a pretty young company and, and the focus is on growth and on um, new features as always. We, we have a, a very good suite of test automation. So we're, we're quite heavy into the, the BDD scene here. So all of our e-commerce suite is um, has got a full suite of sort of behavior-driven tests and that go with it. So we're we're pretty happy when we push the button that our key features on our website will still work. And again, you know, I wouldn't say we're deploying every five minutes, but we're we're certainly in a position where we're, we're comfortable with uh, with the governance around where the codes come from, who's made the change, and and what uh, impact we expect it to make on the website. I'd say the governance is quite light at the moment because we have the visibility. Sure. So we're kind of coming to the end of our time here. Johnny, um, why don't you tell people how they can get a hold of you and what do you have upcoming and, and where are you going to be at where people might be able to find you? Yeah, sure. I've got a, actually quite a new Twitter handle, uh, JMW Pro, um, which I'm starting to kind of separate my personal and, pro- and private uh, Twitter. Um, also, I've got a website, I uh, mentioned it earlier, uh, enterprisedevops.com. A few, uh, a few of my thoughts on there and some of the frameworks that I've, I've been talking about. There's also a download of a, a blank presentation that might help anyone else want to try and uh, describe their, their DevOps journey, so feel free to use that. Um, and I'm also going to, to see Ross and, and his team at Target soon to, um, to try and uh, see if I can uh, share some of my experience at Marks & Spencer with them. Awesome. Um, yeah, you know, let me jump in on that too, because uh, so I'll, I've got a couple things coming up, 
at Target actually. So we've been really focused on DevOps there. And so as, as Johnny mentioned, on March 19th, we're going to be hosting um, kind of our own private enterprise DevOps summit. And we've got a number, we've got four or five presenters coming in to spend the day there with us, uh, including Johnny. He had an, an awesome presentation at the Enterprise DevOps Summit last fall that resonated with uh, myself and some of the other leaders that were there. And what we're essentially doing is we're taking all of Target's uh, technology leaders, uh, so there's a couple hundred of them, and we're essentially going to sequester them for a day for uh, a deep dive in, in all things DevOps, uh, specifically hearing from other leaders at other enterprises that are driving this type of uh, transformation. Uh, Gene Kim's going to keynote that uh, conference as well, so he'll be in for that. Uh, so now that's a little bit of a change for you because you guys have been doing kind of the generic, I don't say, I say generic, but I don't mean generic, but like you've, you've emulated the um, DevOps days type format. And now you're emulating the kind of DevOps Enterprise Summit format. So, like, what's the goal with one versus the other? Yeah, I guess it, the Enterprise DevOps Summit last year, what, what happened is there was a group of, like, I don't know, four or five target leaders that were there. And we were like, oh, this conference is awesome because we're in a community of our peers and we're, you know, talking to all these other companies and hearing how all these other leaders are driving transformations and this is all great, but we all live and breathe DevOps. So, like, you know, I was, I was picking up tips and tricks from folks, but I wasn't, like, going through any big fundamental, like, mindset changes or anything. And then we're like, oh, wouldn't it be great to get a broader group leadership team exposed to this? And so, I, literally, at the bar at Enterprise DevOps Summit, we came up with the idea, let's bring the conference to them. And so we came back and pitched it to... Um, some of the the VPs uh, there and got got kind of senior buy-in and got a budget and all that stuff you got to do to fly people in and and get a space and all that and that's exactly what we're going to do so we've got a lot of folks that aren't you know as deep in this stuff as I am and we're hoping to get them exposed to some thought leaders uh, that that represent a community of their peers so you know enterprises and Johnny being someone that can talk about a, a change he drove at Marks and Spencer will be very relevant for. Um, target leaders. And so, yeah, that's that's why we decided to do that. And that's why we're making that a very leader-focused conference. We still are doing our DevOps days. Um, we have our fourth one coming up February 26th, and you're actually coming uh, out to that one, Ducey. We've got Jez Humble and you as our as our guest speakers. Uh, and that one's, that's going to be really exciting, too. That's our one-year anniversary, and we do them every quarter, so this will be our fourth event that's open to everyone inside our company. It's just an open, inclusive invite. And um, it, based on what I'm seeing, we're tracking to probably have over 300 attendees at wow. that event, which will be huge. And and I'm seeing a lot more leaders accepting, which means we're probably going to have a lot of our more senior uh, leaders there, whereas before it, it tended to be mostly our, our engineers and team members that were showing up for that event. Now, are you gonna are you gonna import some warm weather for us? Because I remember <laughs> last time I was there, I think it was another polar vortex that swooped down on uh, Minneapolis, and I th I don't think I've been back to Minneapolis in the winter since then. So you guys kind of <laughs> jaded me to that whole winter thing. <laughs> you never know; it could be uh, this time of year. It could be fifty one day, and it could be negative twenty the next. So yeah, and I kid, but I flew I flew through there last night, and it was actually the exact same temperature in Minneapolis as it was at home when I ended up landing at home. So 
<laughs> so Ross, how can uh, how can people get a hold of you? Uh, yeah, my Twitter handle is Ross Clanton, just like most of my uh, social and online presences. So you can get a hold of me that way. And I will be. I'm still figuring out my conferences for the year. I'm I'm pretty sure I'm going to Velocity. I'm still working on whether I'll be at ChefConf, uh, but I'm definitely going to have my team, uh, folks from my team at both of those. And as always, you can get a hold of me on Twitter at MFDII. Uh, I myself will be at ChefConf. And uh, speaking of ChefConf, for listeners, if you're interested in 10% off a ChefConf registration, there's a discount code, the Goat Farm we'll get you 10% off. So enter it at registration uh, and tell them that Ross and Michael sent you. Uh, I myself actually, after ChefConf, I probably won't be at anything. I'm trying to get over to DevOps days in Paris, um, but we'll, we'll see what happens there. So Johnny, thanks a lot for coming on. Uh, we really appreciate you taking the time out of your day. Uh, a lot of good information uh, about not only DevOps in the enterprise, but DevOps in a startup as well. Uh, so we really appreciate you coming on. Yes, thank you, John. So, Ross, this wraps up another episode. Thanks to you as well for coming on and, and, and helping co-host. Yeah, thank you. I'm excited to get this one out. And as always, remember, be the, be the goat. goat. <laughs> <laughs> We're never going to get that, man. <laughs> <laughs>